Can you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? If you're using one of the Bibles that are right in front of you in that pew, it's page 979. And while you're finding your way to Ephesians 6, and I really would like everybody to be in the Word of God, let's be studying God's Word together. All these sermons come out of the Word of God in this church. We don't just glance at it, we're, we're preaching out of it. That's expositional preaching. While you're finding it, let me ask you a question. How many of you have read J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings? How many of you have read it or seen the movie? Movies. Then you might be familiar with this scene. I want, you to, I want you to see if you can remember this scene. It's a scene in the throne room of King Theoden, the king of Rohan. And Aragorn, Gandalf, their party had gotten there. And Aragorn, future king, says to the king of Rohan, I will not, I'm sorry, Theoden said to Aragorn, I will not risk open war. Now, all the while, you remember this in the movie, it very vividly portrayed this. You've got a character by the name of Wormtongue that's whispering into Theoden's ears, and you could see his eyes just glazing over with a milky white substance, and he's like in a drunken stupor, and he says, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn replies to him, quote, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Now, Christian, I want to tell you that open war is on you. Whether you want to recognize that fact or not, you are in a spiritual battle. And the question that I want to ask you, and we're going to unpack it throughout this entire series, have you learned verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6? Have you learned to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm? You see, spiritual warfare is not constant. That might be surprising. It ebbs and flows. I mean, haven't you had times when you're walking really closely with the Lord, you're in the Word of God, you're deeply intimate with Him in prayer, and that friendship of God, I'm going to tell you, the enemy waits. That's usually not when he's going to attack. They're not witless. Our spiritual enemies are not... They're not stupid, they're cunning, they're brilliantly evil. It's those times when you come home hungry, what our family calls hangry. Or you're tired, or there was a stressful day, and uh, you're invited perhaps to a friend's party because you struggled with loneliness and you can't wait to get there. And all of a sudden, here comes the attack. Will you pass the test? Before you know it, you've had a major fight with your spouse and you're wondering, what on earth happened? We were doing so well. Haven't you ever experienced that? That's spiritual warfare. Or the next day, you're dealing with a hangover from a party that you went to the night before and you're wondering, as your, your heart is filled with regret, what on earth was I thinking? Why did I do that? Or maybe you even gave away your innocence sexually while wearing your purity ring. I know people that have done that. Filled with regret, having determined, I will wait till marriage, and now you gave it away. All of these are attacks of the enemy. And they happen when we're not 
ready. There are seasons and cycles to, to spiritual warfare, and they wait for our weakest moments, and they unleash their strategies, and they come fast and furious. So knowing this, verse 14, Paul says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to answer three questions. What is the Roman belt and their armor? What is its significance for us spiritually? And how do you live a life fastened with, a, with a belt of truth fastened about you? Well, let's start out with, verse, or with the first point, the Roman belt. Ephesians, one of four prison epistles. That, what it means is this. Paul wrote this letter in house arrest in Rome. He was in house arrest for two years. So Ephesians is coming out of that experience, and likely he's chained to a soldier night and day. That's how they would do it. So Paul sees Roman armor. He sees it up close and personal. He can see it even while he's writing Ephesians chapter 6. You see, a soldier, here's what they would wear. Underneath all of their armor, it would be like you taking a very thick linen bedsheet, square, and putting three holes in it, one for your head, two for each of your arms, and that was their tunic. It was so valuable, by the way, the one that Jesus had. It was all of one piece, and there were no seams in it, that the soldiers were gambling for it at the foot of the cross when they had stripped him of it on the crucifixion. So the tunic is at the very base. That's what they wore. But that would interfere with fighting. So they wore a belt around it, and this is the very first piece of the armor. It's the foundation of their entire armor. They would wear this belt around them, and they would take both sides of that tunic, the left and the right, and they would either push it between the legs up the back or from the rear to the front, and they would bring it to the sides and tuck it into the belt. It's called girding up your loins, and you see it all the time in Scripture. I mean, when you're in the, the demand for mobility, you're in and in close fighting, you can't have this tripping up your legs. So they would gird up their loins, tucking that linen undergarment into their belt. But what are the loins? Well, if you're a butcher at a, at a grocery store, you already know it's the same for animals as it is for humans. It's the lower back. It's the lower stomach, the lower abs. It's your pelvis. Listen, this is what the loins are. They're the entire hip area. And so what the Roman soldier would wear is a belt. It's about a six-inch wide leather belt. If you're a weightlifter, well, think of that leather belt that you, weigh, that you put around the small of your back. But it's thick all the way around. It's called a girdle. And it was made of leather. It's the first piece of armor they would put on. It included, by the way, a breech clout. A breech clout comes down the front. That's what protected the soldier's genitals. They are strips of leather with metal overlaid. So you've got this wide belt with this breech clout, this apron, and it protects the entire lower body. It strengthens the back of the soldier for fighting. You see, the soldier's weapons were even fastened to this belt. And here's the interesting thing. When they were off duty, they would loosen the belt. And then when they came on duty or went into battle, they would tighten the belt. And Paul tells us that we've got to have this belt fastened, not only around us, but cinched and ready for battle. But what does it mean 
to wear this belt in spiritual battle. Point number two, the significance of the belt of truth. Now, the, the message is going to start picking up from this point. And what I really want to tell you is that this is not only this belt foundational for a Roman soldier, it is the foundation for a spiritual battle for the Christian. Look at what Paul says. It's the belt of truth. Well, what does Paul mean by truth? And you might think, well, that's kind of a ridiculously simple question, but it's not that simple because you've got theologians on either side of the debate. Some of them say, well, the truth is the objective revelation of God's word captured in the Bible. But then you've got theologians on the other side that say, no, it's not really that. It's the life and the character of truthfulness that must be in every Christian. So the question we've got is, which one is it? Is it the objective revelation of God's word or is it the character of truthfulness? And I would tell you, I think it's both. It's not either or, it's both of them. And we need the belt of truth because, well, because of what Revelation 12 says. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil. John's going to add a little more in case you don't know who that is. And Satan, he's going to give him his agenda, the deceiver of the whole world. It was thrown down on the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now I want you to read that very carefully. The deceiver of half the world. The deceiver of the Middle East under ISIS, the, the deceiver of, you know, remote militia-controlled jungles in Africa. Do you understand what this means? The deceiver of the whole world. It means that every single person, you've got to get this, every single person is birthed and is living under the deception of the devil until Jesus rescues them. You know, friends, I love living here in Easton. I've been here since 1996 with my wife. We've had three of our children since living here, four altogether. And there's one thing that's really clear to me, and I want you to hear this. This is an incredibly spiritually dark area. You know, our pastor friends, we talk about along the Lehigh Valley Corridor, if you start in, in Allentown and you come eastward, things get progressively spiritually darker. In fact, the Moravians used to be evangelical conservative. They're not anymore. They're a liberal group. But when they were evangelical and conservative, they moved into the area in Nazareth. And they planted communities, churches. And then they turned westward to Bethlehem and they planted churches and communities there as well. And then they said, you know what, let's turn eastward to Easton. Hundreds of years ago, they could not gain a foothold in Easton. They just couldn't make it in. This area is spiritually dark. If you really want to know that, just study the statistics. Easton proper, 29,600 people live in Easton proper. It ranks higher than the national average in prostitution, higher than the average in single-parent homes, fatherless homes, higher than the average in gang activity. This is the area that we live in. This is why in 2006, the plan for Cornerstone was to go out into the country, Gradwall Switch, where we currently own 39 acres and build a megasite. 
And then all of a sudden, the Lord interrupted that and said, why are you going out to the country? You get to the people, the densest demographic that you've got in your area, it's Easton. They're the ones that really need the proclamation of the gospel. They need the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So we moved our entire vision from megasite to multi-site. And we came down our first plant, our first birth of our first campus right here at 2nd Street. Did you know that we're right now, we're working on our third plant. We're working on our next launch up in the Slate Belt region where there's really very few strong evangelical Bible-preaching churches that are wanting to exalt Christ. When we moved down here, 12 churches in Easton were leaving. And most of the churches that were remaining had abandon the word of God. They were preaching liberal sermons, not even really exalting Christ anymore, living on their endowment funds of thousands and thousands, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is an incredibly dark area. It's a need of the word of God. And Christian, I want to tell you, whether you understand it or not, open war is upon you. Forces are arrayed against you, Christian, against your family, against our church family. So I'm going to ask you, do you have the belt of truth fastened? Verse 14. Now, if I were you, I would take your Bibles, I would underline that word fastened, and I would put a little note out in your margin. Because Paul uses a grammatical device that goes like this. The only one who can fasten that belt on is you. Nobody else can do it. I want you to hear me very carefully. God himself will not fasten the belt of truth around you. Parents, you cannot fasten the belt of truth around your your children. This is why parenting is so maddeningly frustrating at times. Because we're very limited, powerfully limited. We can pray for them, but you can't get them on the path of truth. Here's what Proverbs 22 says. Train up a child and the way he should go. You know what that means in the Hebrew language? It means to bring your child to the mouth of the path of wisdom. All you can do, parents, you can bring them to the mouth of the path of wisdom, like the mouth of a river where it begins. You can get them to the beginning, but you cannot get them to step foot on it. You cannot get them to get back on it if they walk off of it. We train them, we pray for them, but we're limited in what we can do. See, fastening on the belt is a constant choice to live by what God says And what God has done. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Well, that sounds kind of odd. There's no square linen undergarment in your mind. What he's saying is, you've got to fasten on the belt of truth. Do you believe God's word? You know, let me tell you something that is probably the the most important statement I'm going to make in this message. Listen, indelibly imprint this on your mind. If you get nothing else that I'm telling you, that's fine. Just get hold of what I'm about to tell you. And let that be what you walk out of here with. Here it is. The more you know God's word, the tighter the belt of truth is. 
The more you know God's word, the tighter this belt is. And listen, this belt holds your entire armor together. Did you hear that? This belt holds the entire armor together. This is why Paul goes first with the belt of truth. It's not only the very first article that a soldier put on his belt, it holds all the rest of the armor together. So I'm going to ask you three questions. I don't know your answers. You're the only one that does. So let's just be super honest. Be just honestly brazen with your own soul. Do you know the truth as revealed in the Bible? Do you know the truth that has been revealed in the Bible? Are you in this, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, bringing it into your life? Are you in the truth? Do you know it as revealed in the Bible? Are you content to yield yourself to the authority of the Word of God? Is this authority the highest authority in your life? Or is your best friend's opinion more, await, more weighty? Or your own agenda more weighty? God, I like most of your authority until it really interferes with the way that I want to live my life. And then all of a sudden, my authority trumps your authority. So if you're going to have the belt of truth on, number one, you've got to know the truth that has been revealed in the Bible, and it needs to become your greatest authority in your life. But thirdly, are you able to discern between what is true and what is a lie? You know, I used to work in a lumberyard. If, uh, if I ever were jettison from ministry, I probably would love to be back in a lumberyard. There's something about working. My father co-owned a True Value lumberyard when I grew up, and I worked in that. And I love the smell of wood. I love everything that goes with the lumberyard. And often when a contractor got to the end of the project, to the finished work, they would order some boards, and I would pick them out, put them on the truck, and I would deliver them to them. Now, when you get to the finished work, it's utterly critical you get the straight boards. There's times where I didn't get straight boards and they sent me back with them. I had to bring out the straight ones. Well, how did you know if the board was straight? It's really not, at least for me, it wasn't really that easy just to eyeball the edge of a 16-foot board and really see, is that really straight? So what I learned to do is you get one that you know has been confirmed as straight and you put that down and then you put all the ones you're selecting over that. And if it deviates, you know there's a problem in it. And it goes back in the pile. Well, friends, that's how you learn to discern between what is right and true and what is lies and deception. You do it. Here's your straight board. It is the word of God. The more you know the truth, the, the tighter it's fastened around you, all of a sudden you begin to see what is not true. By the way, in 47 years of a Christian life, I'm 51. I came to know the Lord at four and a half in 47 years, this has been probably the greatest growth in my life. I can read 
a book written by a Christian author, and all of a sudden, when that author begins to deviate from the truth, all of a, all of a sudden, little lights go on in my mind, little clacks and bells go off in my heart, and I could begin to see. I might not always know, well, there's why it's not true, but something is alerting me. It's because I've been in the Word of God for 47 years. I love the Word of God. I want it to be my greatest authority. And all of a sudden, that belt of truth gets fastened, and I can begin to see this is not the truth of God. That bell went off in raging fashion yesterday. I was absolutely furious watching a video of the current pope who was doing an outdoor address to hundreds of people in a park and an eight-year-old little boy sobbing and weeping asked a question of him. He was sobbing so much that they had to allow him to go up and whisper it into the Pope's ear. And the question was this, will my atheist father who just died go to hell? That was his question to the Pope. The Pope answers him, sits down with the boy's permission, begins to address the crowd. He tells him what the boy's question was, and then he begins to give his answer, and I'm going to tell you the long and short of it. And the answer was this, parents, do you not love your children? And parents, do you not see the beauty in that father who taught his child to be so bold to ask that question? Would our God ever turn down even a non-believer like that? That is a lie. It made me furious because here's an opportunity for the Pope to be able to preach Christ. Listen, if there's another way to heaven other than through, through Christ, why would he send his son to die? Why would he send him to be crucified on the cross? Why would Jesus say, no one comes to the Father but through me? There's an opportunity to be able to say God loves you and God loved your father so much that he sent his son to die for him. Instead, he fabricated a deception. And all those people the entire time were applauding the Pope for finding a way to prove that an atheistic, non-believer man is going to be in heaven with God. Listen, that's not truly comforting. That's a lie. What you need is a board that is straight, and that board is the Word of God. And the more you're in the Word of God, the more you're going to discern what is true and what is not true. And not only what are the lies in this world, but the lies in ourselves. You're going to be able to see because you're inviting God. Search me, O God. Test me. See if there's anything crooked or wicked in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the power of this belt of truth. It's not only going to show you the revealed word of God, it's going to be producing truthfulness in you. Did you know, friends, that unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness is a strategy of the devil? Did you know that that's one of the ways that God is right now outwitting some of the people in our church that I know are not forgiving someone who hurt them? In fact, I know someone that I would stand before you like I am now and confidently tell you I think his life ended prematurely because of the disease that came from unforgiveness. Did you know that burned doctors and experts have proven 
that skin grafts will not take if there's unforgiveness in the heart of the person. There's one of the most famous burn doctors in all the world that says, I no longer try to do skin grafts until I can lead my patient into forgiveness because the skin won't graft. Unforgiveness is toxic that even impacts your physiological level. It's a scheme of the devil, and I'm going to prove it, 2 Corinthians 2. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul said, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake and the presence of Christ. Here it is. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What's one of his designs? Well, his design is this, Christian. Don't give forgiveness until they ask. You will not find that biblically. And thank God... He forgives us. His mercies are new every morning. The belt of truth, when it is fastened on, obliterates unforgiveness. Why? Because God has forgiven us so much, and it moves in us with the power and the grace to forgive others. You see, even for God's children, being outwitted by Satan is not unusual if you do not love God's truth. And to see how easily you can be outwitted, we're going to turn to the third and final point. How does a belt of truth function in the life of a Christian? I'm going to read you a verse that's not on the screen, I don't believe. It's from John 8, 44. It's Jesus describing Satan. He said he's a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks one version, his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I'm going to tell you something that, oddly enough, might be comforting. It shouldn't be, to be honest with you. Satan, I don't think, knows any of us personally. I think he's after the big giants in the kingdom of God. But he has a horde of demons. He has forces and principalities that are ranked and they are coming and unleashing against us their strategies. And he moves us to lie. He moves us to live in deception. You know what Winston Churchill once said was his foreign policy statement with Hitler? This is kind of actually funny. He said, every single thing that Hitler ever says, I know it's the exact opposite of truth. That's really what he was saying. He didn't believe anything of Hitler. Because he knew Hitler was never going to tell the truth. But the question that you might be asking, and maybe you need to know, is who is Satan? Who is he? Why does he and his horde of demons hate us so much? Do you know that he was created as a cherub angel? Ezekiel 28 says that when he was created, his body was made of precious stone. His name was Lucifer at his creation, which means the shining one. And his job was to reflect to God, God's own glory. This is why his body was made of brilliant jasper and stonework of all precious kinds. And we learn in Ezekiel 28 that his job in heaven was as the greatest angelic being there was. His job was to direct worship to God. I mean, you've just experienced worship in song this morning. 
And Peter and John and the team, they were up there singing. Listen, they weren't saying, hey, give us your worship. Give us your adoration. Give us your excellence. Exalt us in your minds. They don't want to be in the stream of worship. They just want to say, listen, the one who is rightfully receiving worship, that is Jesus Christ. Get it to him. Don't let it even stop at us. Well, well, Lucifer got a taste of, of the elixir of worship. He says, you know, I really like this. And I really want it for me. I don't want it going to God any longer. I want it for me. So he creates a corporate ladder plan of five rungs. Here's his plan as clearly as you can say, as clearly as you can imagine. Here's what his plan was. It's outlined in five I will statements in Isaiah 14. Here they are. You can see them in the passage before you. I will ascend to the heaven. He wasn't content to stand before the throne of heaven. He wanted full access to the place where God rules sovereignly over all. I will ascend. That will be where I live. That was rung number one. Rung number two, above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. While Job chapter 38 says that stars were symbols of angels... Lucifer wanted to rule over all the angels. He wanted all of their service at his request and his command. But it gets higher. He's got a, he's got a third rung. I will sit on the mount, on the mount of assembly, Isaiah 2.2. 2. Mountains were symbols of kingdoms and nations. Lucifer wanted to rule over every nation, over every people group, over every kingdom. And now you're really going to see his plan unfold because he goes to step number four, rung number four. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. By the way, are you getting a trajectory here? Pride filled this heart. Pride always moves you to self-exaltation. Humility always moves you to self-abasement, self-lowering. That's two opposite directions. And rung number four, I will ascend above the, the heights of the clouds. Well, you remember Exodus 16.10, the glory of God was seen in the clouds. This is, this is amazing. Lucifer wanted his glory to be higher and greater than God's glory. And then finally, the, the fifth rung, the most dastardly of them all, I will make myself like the most high. And his final goal is clear. He wants to be God. And he unleashed this strategy in a war that Revelation 12 captures. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. He was cast to earth. His bid to be God failed. And his legions of fallen angels furiously bound in the parameters of this planet. They are seeking to destroy every single human being. Why? Because you and I are created in the image of God. He hates that image. He's our adversary, the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he shows up in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden looking to devour his first human victims. Can you turn to Genesis 3? We're going to watch this unfold. And we're going to watch how Adam and Eve did not have the belt of truth tightened around them. Genesis chapter 3, the story begins in verse 1. This is Satan in serpent form. 
Now the serpent was more crafty, cunning, brilliantly smart than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Satan did, did God actually say? (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. I think my water is in the very back by Matt. No, maybe it's up here. Now look at this. Did God actually say, Satan asks, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did you know this is the first question in the Bible? And you know that questions can be asked by a counselor that is gifted to be able to help you go down into your heart and bring up what's hidden? Or questions can be asked to put cracks in what you think you believe. You want to find an example in modern literature of the second use of questions. Well, then I would offer you carefully to read Love Wins by Rob Bell. Very thin little book that has over 400 questions in it. And question after question is designed to get you to deconstruct what you think you know about God and hell and heaven and reconstruct it the way that Rob Bell wants. And that's the way that Satan uses questions. He's got to deconstruct the word of God before he can reconstruct it in the way that he wants. And so he asks his first question of Eve. He never talks to Adam. He only speaks to Eve. Why is that? Is it because women are weaker than men? Listen, let me tell you, my wife is far, honestly, far smarter than I am. She knows as much theology as I do. She knows the Word of God as well and sometimes better than I do. There is no women are weak here. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. There's lots of reasons he does this. One of them, he's going to appeal to her femininity. And he's going to deceptively lodge in her mind a suspicion about the truth of God. And woman says this to the serpent, verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of, of, of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. See, her defense against the strategy of the devil was to bring in her own authority with God. You see, God never said that you cannot touch the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. He said, do not eat of it. She says, wait, wait a minute. That sounds kind of hollow. I'm under attack. God's word is under attack. I've got to kind of help it out. I've got to bring in my own opinions. I've got to bring in my own authority to sort of cinch up a loose end in the truth belt. See, not only did she not rely with full confidence on God's truth, there was not now found full truthfulness in her. She lost the battle. She didn't even know it. Satan overcame her, influencing her with his own ambitions. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Forget questions. This is a front-on attack now against God's word. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, what's the fifth rung on his corporate plan to become the highest being in the universe? It's to be like God. He's infecting her with the same motive. 
And all of a sudden, her femininity, her heart, her ambitions, her motives, her desires begin to follow her eyes. Not the truth begins to follow her eyes. So when the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then also, the Bible says, gave some to her deadbeat husband. He's right there. You got to be wondering, right? Where's Adam this whole time? He's right there next to her and he eats. This is why God later indicts Adam because you listened to your wife. The word in the Hebrew, you heard with the intention to obey her. And you got to be wondering, well, wait a minute. God created Adam to be the head of the marriage, his headship. It's not a laborious dictatorial rule. It's a loving protection that a husband gives to his wife. They inverted it. Satan got them to reverse that. And he demolished marriage. He brought in sin. And he let his, got, his, got Eve to lead Adam into sin. You see, if our first couple on the planet had fastened up the belt of truth, they would have clearly seen that God's truth is clear, it is beautiful to live under its authority, and it's giving me the eyes to discern between the lies of the devil and the truth of God. They loosened the belt, and it practically fell off their hips. You see, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know why it was there, right? It was there to test their obedience. It was there to prove that their love for God was greater than their love for themselves. It was there to be able to say that in a time of temptation that the devil wants to make your faith fail, God will use the same but calls it a test in order to prove your faith genuine. That tree was a test. The devil made it a temptation. And they did not have the belt of truth on and they lost the battle and brought sin into every human being since. So friends, I want to close and ask you some questions. Are you susceptible to the schemes of Satan? Are you being deceived by his forces? Do you believe, you know what, my marriage is never going to change? You know that's a strategy of the devil. I'm never going to be able to overcome this addiction. That's a strategy of the devil. There's no hope in this world. It's going to get worse and worse. That's a strategy of the devil. Are you being deceived by his forces? Are you convinced that it's okay? You know what? We just came through tax season. Are you not, along with me, tired of the government taking so much? So maybe just fudge it a little bit. I don't think I'm going to get caught. And I get a little bit more money. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'll even use some of it for the kingdom of God. A half truth is a full lie. That is not truthfulness. So Christian, do you love God's truth as your highest authority? Do you appeal to that? I have a very good friend who constantly goes to everybody asking for their feedback into his life over particular matters. And I've taught him for years. I said, listen, stop asking other people. Go find God's opinion and live your life based on that. And if anybody ever gives you an opinion, let them direct you to the word of God, to Jesus Christ. If they're just waxing eloquent, you don't want their opinion because that's not the belt of truth. 
You see, the devil's strategy is to get you to lose confidence in truth, to forfeit truthfulness, to loosen that belt. Here's what God wants. Cinch it up, learn God's word, invite him to help you live a life of truthfulness. Amen.